0: Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe, host of Think Sustainability, a show where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. In a couple of weeks' time, a few of us from 2 will be heading over to New York to attend the New York Radio Awards. And this is really exciting because Think Sustainability is nominated for an award in the Environment and Ecology category. And we're up against some of the world's best, including the BBC, CBC, and Australia's own ABC as well. So today you're going to hear the Think Sustainability episode that was nominated, which includes three stories, one about snapping and burping sea life, one about one of the smallest pools in Australia, and also a story about a fly that was named after Beyonce. Enjoy. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe.
1: I'm Mel Lee Peter.
0: Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2 scr where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. So I know we do a whole lot of ocean stories.
1: Oh, I love the ocean stories.
0: I seriously can't get enough. But the ocean story that we have this week, I think really takes the cake. So you know how whales make sound and dolphins do that... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They're like, the dolphin laugh.
0: The story that we're going to be doing is looking at what the sounds say about the biological diversity of the ocean and the wellness of the ocean. Ooh. And also, today's Sustainable House Day which essentially means people with sustainable houses open up their doors and people come in to, like, check it out and see what see what they all look like.
1: Are you going to any sustainable houses today, Jake? I
0: am. I'm going to Roselle, and I'm going to check one out. But what's interesting about this house is they still have a pool.
1: How does that work? How can you have a sustainable pool?
0: Well, the owner of this house is doing something a little bit tricky to keep the pool intact. You'll find out about that a
2: little bit later on. But up first... Did you know in a world without flies, there would be no chocolate? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, no, I'm serious. Why? Um, that's because the only known pollinator of the cocoa plant is a tiny little midge fly. And it's only about a, uh, the size of a pinhead. This is Brian Lassard from CSIRO in Canberra, but he also goes by Bry, the Fly Guy. And it's the smallest thing that can penetrate these flowers... Because even these flies have a sweet tooth because they're after the nectar of the cocoa plant.
0: Right, I reckon if people knew that, then their whole attitude would completely change towards flies because a world without chocolate isn't a world at all.
2: Exactly. I remember going through the unsorted material at the Australian National Insect Collection in Canberra and there was this bright golden abdomen that caught my attention. And because I happened to know that group and had the expertise of that group of horsefly, I could tell it was a new species. So I, I pulled it out of the drawers and described it, and I called it Plinthina Beyonce after the bootylicious Beyonce.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so that does that
0: now? Does that naming now go down in history?
2: Yep, so Beyoncé will always be in the history books. In 2,000 years' time, this fly would still be named after Beyoncé, and it's one more legacy that she will have. (laughs) I love it. I love it. It's so good.
3: It's
2: It's a tough thing to sell, flies, but I'm doing the best I can. In 35 years we're also going to be eating 70% more animal products and the cost of feeding these animals is going to escalate too. So we kind of need to look to novel ways to feed this growing population and why not feed them with flies? So are you saying that we feed our animals with the flies or that we eat them ourselves? Uh, It depends how keen you are on flies, I guess. Um, (laughs) There's one that's been introduced called the black soldier fly And many people have suggested that we could use the larvae of this species to kind of feed the growing population. Mm. And they actually eat a lot more than worms, so they're quite productive. And they can eat a range of any sort of organic matter that's decaying, uh, like rotting vegetables, fruit, and meat scraps. And they can convert this organic matter into a rich source of... Uh, nutrients, uh, fats, oils, amino acids, and are actually 45% crude protein. So they're actually really nutritious for farm animals.
0: How will, like, I know that it'd probably be much more difficult to try and get us to eat these or to convince people to eat them, but will the animals eat them? Will they be happy to put them on their diets? Yeah,
2: so some researchers have actually found that some animals prefer the taste of black soldier flies chickens actually grew a lot larger and prefer the taste of black soldier fly larvae than conventional livestock feed, which is pretty promising. Pigs, fish, prawns, and also even alligators, crazy enough, all can really? be fed black soldier flies. Yeah. Can you imagine like an alligator eating like a bucket load of soldier fly larvae? <laughs> I I just, it might not be
0: enough to suffice, but I guess if they eat enough of them, they'd be happy. <laughs>
2: Yeah, so we don't have to feed them all black soldier flies because that'd be a pretty boring diet, but we could supplement their current diet with black soldier flies to kind of up the protein content. I like to call black soldier flies the original hipsters because they love organic and they're really good at recycling. Um, <laughs> That's <laughs> that's because they can um, eat any sort of decaying organic. Researchers in Costa Rica have actually found that they could significantly reduce household waste by up to seventy five percent just by feeding it to black soldier flies. So that's pretty amazing. In a household, though, would
0: people want that? Would that mean that there'd be a lot more flies surrounding kind of their house?
2: Well, these black soldier flies are already part of your compost. And they're already all over the world, Um, so there's no worry about these flies escaping and um, colonising a new area because they already exist in our environment. But what we can do is we can take the green waste from the consumer and intercept it before it gets to landfill, and then we can bring it to the black soldier fly farm ourselves and turn this organic waste into something useful like animal feed.
0: Oh, are there are there these black soldier fly black soldier fly farms? Sorry, said <laughs> five times fast. That's are okay. they are they already <laughs> around?
2: Yeah, so there's one in um, Canberra right now, where I'm from. These places are trying to start this uh, new and exciting sustainable industry, and we can actually grow them in a, an aviary, like a bird pen, but with an aviary full of flies. <laughs> nah, that doesn't make sense. No, no, no. no I, I, it's just like you know how
0: you would go to kind of the zoo, or you'd go to an aviary to see different species or see different bird species. Like, mm-hmm. uh, imagine people going to like a fly aviary to go see flies. Like, I don't know. Is do you think that that's likely at all to happen?
2: I think it would happen. Like, we when you think about it, we already have. Butterfly exhibits that we walk into and let butterflies land on our noses and faces. So, why not flies? Australia, remember me? I'm the one who spreads germs as
1: easy as can be. I'm filthy and dirty as you can see. That's right, I'm the bad
2: guy, the one called Louie. Louis the
3: fly, I'm Louis the fly.
2: I think it's all just in our minds that, you know, flies are disgusting.
0: Are they really, though? Because do you know that rumour or well that thing that you kind of hear that they, like, they vomit, they poo and they
2: pee, like, every second? Does that actually happen? Yeah, so some flies do vomit on their food to digest it. And that that is disgusting to most people, <laughs> in, including me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but many species, you know, they're not disease vectors, although some are. So, yeah, there's always those few exceptions that give flies a bad name.
0: If we take this on board and we start to build or cater for more black soldier fly farms would they be able to breed fast enough so they'd be able to become a protein for animals but then also not
2: decrease the populations of them? One female black soldier fly can have up to 600 eggs and it only takes them a few weeks to get to the harvesting point and the larvae actually self-harvest. So when they're ready to enter pupation, they crawl out of the organic substrate and then into a bucket and then we can transform them into little food bars and the adults don't actually feed so they only live a couple days after they emerge enough time to mate and lay eggs this is great because there's no worry about them transferring diseases to humans so that's pretty exciting too if you wanted to go for a hike in your local park in a world without flies we would be stepping in all sorts of nasty stuff and tripping on dead bodies and rotting logs so we really need flies to do the dirty work for us Brian Lasart,
0: researcher from CSIRO Canberra.
1: You're listening to Think Sustainability on two SER one oh seven point three. Jake, have you been snorkeling before?
0: No. Uh, I've oh. I've never been to the Great Barrier Reef either.
1: Oh, how can you call yourself an Australian?
0: But you know what's even funnier is I get so excited every week when I'm like, oh, I'm doing another ocean story this week, yet I'm kind of, I have a little bit of an irrational fear of the ocean. It's not necessarily that it's sharks or, or, for some reason, I just am intimidated by the vastness. Are you
1: intimidated by the vastness of the desert? <laughs>
0: No, because but I I so walk, weird. like I'm a good walker. I'm not like the best swimmer. Maybe that's the length that uh, I'm not maybe. an amazing swimmer.
1: I, I just don't understand how you can't like the ocean. Like I absolutely love swimming and snorkeling in the ocean and like looking at all the little fishies and the coral. And I, it's only actually after listening to this story, Jake, that I realized the sounds that I hear when I'm snorkeling isn't just my ears doing funny things, but it's the the sea creatures making noises.
0: And some noises that you wouldn't expect from sea creatures.
4: When you first start listening to these recordings, anything or everything is unexpected because a lot of people think the oceans are silent. And when you listen to these recordings, it's quite perplexing. You know, It's like, like going to a pub where there's, there's a lot of talking, different volumes, and it's the same for underwater um, um, recordings. Well, initially I started recording of sounds in the water in maybe 2006 or so.
0: This is Ivan Nagelkirchen. Ivan is an associate professor from the University
4: of Adelaide. Fish are very vocal too, they are very noisy, they, they, they talk a lot to each other, they communicate, they use it for courtship, for defence. A lot of fish actually are able to produce a whole suite of different melodies and, and noises
0: you know everyone kind of imitates a fish being like do they sound do they sound like that or what
4: no that no that's a goldfish that comes to the surface and uh, gulps up air but <laughs> marine fish don't uh, don't do that so they can be clicks and pops and and purring sounds it's chirping sounds it's, it's 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 quite diverse
0: and you know what else fish can do burp Now, if you listen closely underneath that crackling sound, you'll hear some fishy noises. Listen carefully. Now it may just sound like some bubbling, but that's actually fish burping. But what's that crackling sound? Is it just the microphone? Are they near some underwater pockets spurting out air?
4: Most of the underwater sounds is uh, is produced by snapping shrimp. It's the shrimp. And these guys here use their claws to make very loud snaps. And these snaps are used to communicate with each other, to fend off predators, but also to capture prey. So the velocity at which they snap their claws is so high that you actually get cavitation of the of the water. Uh, which forms a, a air bubble and that leads to a loud snap. It's just like in old submarines where the um, propeller um, at high speed would create air bubbles.
0: Why look at the sounds in the ocean?
4: Well, that's a very good question. Um, why is it important? Because... Uh, Research has actually shown that larvae of fish, but also invertebrates such as crabs and oysters and so on, corals even, that they respond to underwater sounds. And that's not strange because by far the majority of marine species just release their eggs and let them float away with the ocean currents. So these larvae end up kilometers, sometimes hundreds of kilometers, offshore. But at some point, they need to return to the coast. So if you're out there in the ocean, in a, in a you know, dark blue ocean, and you don't have a clue where to go, well, that's problematic if you need to return to the coast. So most species of larvae have, uh, through time, evolved into developing very sensitive uh, senses, particularly hearing. So that means that while they're drifting in the ocean, if they pick up sounds... They can actually use that as a orientation cue to navigate uh, shoreward. What we found is that global stressors such as ocean acidification which result from the increasing greenhouse gas emissions by humans into the atmosphere, that process as well as nutrient pollution both lead to very rapid habitat degradation and what we've observed is that in these degraded habitats the biological sounds are less diverse and less loud. So that's actually a negative feedback. So you lose habitat for, for example, your fishes, as a result of which um, your habitat is less loud, as a result of which larvae have more difficulty in hearing a degraded habitat, as a result of which your adult populations uh, become smaller.
0: It becomes kind of like a quiet chaos in the ocean. Exactly.
4: I did for example recordings at natural um, CO2 vents. So around the world there are volcanic areas um where uh, CO2 so is released from the bottom. So for example we were there with with a boat and I had a hydrophone with a um audio recorder and this audio recorder I would put in a uh, in a big a barrel and that barrel is attached to an anchor. And I would just yeah, anchor this barrel onto the reef with the hydrophone and the, and the water microphone, just dangling a few meters above the uh, above the reef. And the next moment, I would just pick it up, and down, download those sounds on my computer, um, erase the memory card, put it back in the recorder, put in new batteries, and then record it. Uh, record it again overnight at a different site.
0: Just for example's sake, um, when you were recording there, and maybe even if you were doing a recording here in Australia on our coast, um, how did the two recordings, I guess, in sound and loudness uh, differ?
4: Um, Well, at control sites, at these vents, and at... A healthy kelp forest here in Gulf St. Vincent in South Australia. Those, they they are very similar. You just hear a lot of clicks and and snaps by snapping shrimp. So very abundant and very loud. And you also hear lots of background sounds of, of fishes. And you hear the rasping sounds of urchins. That's so when you replay sounds recorded from degraded reefs or from these directly on these CO2 vents. It's actually much, much quieter. You don't, you don't hear as many sounds and they're not as, as loud.
0: When you listen back to these recordings of when it's really quiet
4: working in this space, is that upsetting to you? Um, yes, definitely, because humans are impacting uh, the ocean in so many different ways, and this is yet, yet another way. What we've also found is that ocean acidification uh, not only affects the, the habitat sounds, but it also affects the ability of fish larvae to interpret these sounds. So, for example, when you raise fish larvae under high CO2 conditions, again, as predicted for the end of the century, you actually see that they're not attracted to biological sounds anymore. So instead of swimming towards the sounds, they simply don't respond or swim away.
0: And so that means it could just, again, change that dynamic. They're not listening out for sounds because they don't really know what they are.
4: Exactly, yeah. And we also found on top of that that the snapping shrimps are responsible for the majority of sound production underwater. So not only does their habitat... Decrease as a result of which you have fewer snapping shrimps and therefore less sound, we also found that ocean acidification in itself also alters the snapping behaviour of these shrimps. They simply become more quiet. So that's a double effect. So quieter shrimps and fewer shrimp lead to habitats which are by far um, more silent.
1: That's Ivan Nagelkirken, Associate Professor from the University of Adelaide.
0: What's the most unsustainable thing about your house? Oh,
1: the pool. Yeah, you I, we've have spoken a pool. about we've spoken about this on the show before. How, how
0: big is your pool?
1: Oh, it's about ten meters long. It's pretty big. I think a standard pool is probably about eight meters long. I yeah.
0: have no like sense of metric, <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I don't know how. So
1: if you think of like a twenty-five meter pool, it'd fit in there two and a bit times. That's pretty decent. Yeah, it's a pretty big pool. You know
0: what the most unsustainable thing about my house is?
1: Uh My parents
0: (laughs) Like I'm moving out Yes I'm still at home I'm moving out In the next couple of months or so And I said to my mum The other day I'm like Hey before I leave Why don't I start a compost here And then you can keep it running And she's like But you won't be here
1: But you're Uh going to say That your your parents Just walk around Just like turning on Every light in the house
0: (laughs) (laughs) But some people Who are doing it right Are partaking in Sustainable house day Opening up their houses Around Sydney To show people How it's done And I actually Got to go along and visit Cynthia Mitchell. So I got to see one such sustainable house up close. Hey, hey how are you? you. Thanks for coming around, hey? yeah, Thanks for having just
3: me. With, um...
0: I've just arrived at Cynthia Mitchell's house. Nice. And although it's sustainable house day today, Cynthia hasn't opened her house to the public. Unfortunately, she has a moon boot strapped around one of her legs, so a day of strangers coming in and out probably wouldn't be a whole lot of fun. But Cynthia welcomed me in to have a look around. And first we headed to the dining room, which is an open plan, no walls separating it from the kitchen and living room. And it also homes one of the house's most treasured items.
3: This room is designed around this table, so th- this table was a present from a whole lot of people for my 40th birthday, and mm. it's it's a square table, it's quite a large table, and it's a bit of an unusual shape, um, and it requires a pretty large room for it to go in, and so one of the key considerations in the in the design was making sure that the dining room was wide enough
0: for this table. Yeah,
3: <laughs> that's right. Um, and so when we when we got the table and the chairs back here and put them alongside the the kitchen. Uh, Benchwork and the and the, the marble we kind of went oh my goodness isn't that fabulous they work oh well thank, thank God <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's right yeah so
0: can we do a tour we sure can. where
3: would you
0: like to start um where's the best place to start
3: uh, well if we go out the front then I can kind of start at the beginning I guess sounds good yeah. Missy. Yeah. Missy
0: Missy is one of Cynthia's cats by the way she followed us around the entire time I was there
3: sure thanks Sarah so the house um, was built in the early 1900s. We had a few goals with this renovation, and one was to uh, to give the house another 110 years of, of life, basically. And, and so we, one of the key things was the thermal performance of the house. Uh, it used to be very cold in winter and very hot in summer. As um, an old house. As an old house, yeah. Do you have solar panels? Yeah, we do. There's 4.5 kilowatts um, up on the roof. hmm and there's, there's also 9,000 litres of, of rainwater tanks um, underneath the house.
0: Really? Where? Like they're under right the feet. ground?
3: <laughs> no, they're right right under your feet, if you take a step back.
0: Mm. Down the stairs?
3: Yeah, one more step back.
0: Oh, right. We've got a few trapdoors in the house. That's oh, wow, right. So
3: that's, the, that's the little pool pump that you can see that way. Yeah. That's one of three big tanks. There's two more that way.
0: So what was, did you have to kind of knock all that out when you did the renovations to put them in or was it? No, like, there was, was it... just
3: enough space. So we, we got a, um, a really good water and energy guy to help us work out what was possible. Mm. Um, and so we went for these bladder tanks to use up the space underneath the house because we're in Roselle. So we don't have um, much yard, but we wanted to have a nice, like, nice big volume of water.
0: Because I I also the first thing I noticed was there's a there's a small pool. pool. Yeah, Yeah.
3: (laughs) is that sustainable? sustainable? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So sustainability has three elements, right? Yeah. Um, One is environmental, one is economic, and one is social. So my partner was absolutely dead keen on having a pool. She grew up in Manly, Mm -hmm. so that was a really important thing for her.
0: That's the social sustainability. That's the social sustainability.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And so what we what I needed to do to be comfortable with that was to put a whole lot of good sustainability stuff around the pool Mm. so there's uh the size of the pool it's small it's it's literally about three meters by two meters (laughs) and it's really deep so it's it's about 1.6 meters deep so it's kind of like a really deep spa and we use rainwater to fill it
0: right okay so
3: all of those things make it a a relatively sustainable pool
0: why don't we jump inside
3: sure so
0: Cynthia mentioned the earlier they had a green roof. So that's what we went to check out, out next. But out I got distracted on the steps. So it, it, what kind of um, wood?
3: This is all recycled hardwood. So all of the timber that you can see downstairs is the original flooring from the house. Yeah. And so that's literally 100, 110 years old 100 or so, 115 years old. The staircase uh, and the um, the balustrades and the flooring upstairs is all... Uh, recycled hardwood and in that area where we were just sitting out the back there was you might have noticed the brick wall on Mm. the south side so that the bricks down there they're um, convict sandstock bricks so basically what that means is that they've got these little black sort of explosion centers Mm. in them and it's because when convicts were making bricks uh, we were less particular about taking the organic matter out of the clay Um, and so when you fire the bricks the organic matter eventually went Mm. And you get these little black centres in all of those bricks. So they're as old as the house is.
2: Oh, very cool. Mm.
0: So we were walking up the stairs into the master bedroom, which is where you could see the green roof from. And that's what it was, a green roof. So you planted all of this?
3: Um, We had some help. So there's um, 25 centimetres of soil and it's 25 square metres. So there's many tonnes of weight here. Um, the engineering of it was actually quite significant to make sure that there was sufficient support and so forth. What we wanted was a combination of something that was gorgeous to look at uh, and also productive. And so we've got a mixture of of natives and productive species out here. So you can see the the daisies and the nasturtiums. Those are native grasses down the back there.
0: Aside from just having it as a green space Mm -hmm. in the house, what was the incentive for you to get one?
3: Lizzie's thing was was the pool and my thing was the green roof. It's like, oh, my goodness, what if we could have a green roof? That would be so cool. Mm -hmm. Um, But here we get a double benefit. So having something green there, um, that's the wall of our bedroom, obviously. And so having something green means that we get a much cooler breeze in these windows in in summer than we would otherwise have. And so you have a a thermally regulated volume that's right next to our bedroom as well.
0: Let's head back down. Cynthia was quick to stress that this isn't a project for everyone and that they weren't surprised when they went over their budget. But cost aside, there's a great feel to the house, something Cynthia believes comes from a sustainability mindset. But at the moment, that's not a feeling everybody shares.
3: I think there's something about helping people see really gorgeous sustainable homes because there's I, I think there is still a bit of an idea that if it's sustainable it must be a bit kind of you know hair chest in some way so it mm-hmm. it must be a little bit difficult or hard some somehow to live in
0: what does it feel like to live here
3: Ah, oh, it's gorgeous <laughs> it's it's really gorgeous so
0: i love the little pool as well like, yeah. it, like if you, you just just have a dip
3: yeah and that's that's the thing and that the pool changes um how people relate to each other because we we have the same friends now that we had before the renovation, and we had a whole bunch of people over at one point during during the summer and it, it's because a pool is a relaxing thing, and we designed we actually designed the pool ourselves with a, a bench seat around two sides that's kind of like this deep, mm-hmm. so you can just sit in there and, and chat so there's a whole lot of people just hanging out in the pool and having i don 't know just different more relaxed conversations. Somehow, because of the because there's something about the environment that's, that's shifted and helps people relax a bit more, really, somehow.
0: Cynthia Mitchell from the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney.
1: Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the support of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER.
0: For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, which is 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability.
1: You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability.
0: I'm Jake Malcolm.
1: I'm Ellen Leebeter.
0: See you next week.